Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the Multi-Faith Matters Podcast, and I am the host, John Moorhead, and I am privileged today to have uh, two guests. One is a returning guest, Thomas K. Johnson, and uh, Tom uh, introduced me to uh, uh, someone who I hope will be a new friend and colleague, C. Holland Taylor. And uh, these gentlemen are here today. Uh, They work together on the Humanitarian Islam slash WEA World Evangelical Alliance Joint Working Group, and they're going to be discussing... uh, uh, the new book, the forthcoming book, God Needs No Defense, Reimagining Muslim-Christian Relations in the 21st Century. And uh, it is a fantastic volume. Um, I would like to begin with uh, you gentlemen sharing a little bit about uh, your work, uh, what, what you're doing right now, and how you came together on this project. Tom, why don't we start with you? Well, uh, my background is as a university philosophy professor, but also as an evangelical pastor. And in, since 2012, I've been the Senior Theological Advisor for the World Evangelical Alliance. And at this time, you know, the World Evangelical Alliance has blossomed in the last couple decades and now represents 600 million Christians in 140 countries. And so my job is to help facilitate the global theological discussion, trying to participate and contribute to important discussions and uh, especially in interfaith and intrafaith relations. So I've been tasked with Vatican relations, but also relating with the humanitarian Islam movement, which we see as a uh, very significant. So that's why I was asked to, uh, to spearhead our interaction with the humanitarian Muslims. And Holland has a similar role for the humanitarian Islam movement of uh, being there, you know, an international role on behalf of what they're trying to do. Well, thank you for that. And if folks are interested, they can go back and look in our, our library of videos and audio, and they can uh, look at that previous conversation that Tom and I had. But uh, we're not, as I said at the beginning, we're not here alone to have another conversation just between us. We also have uh, another colleague in the mix, and that's uh, Holland Taylor. Holland, can you share a little bit more about your background and how you and Tom came to work together? Sure. <clears throat> Um, basically, my, my background, my family background's from North Carolina. My father was an officer in the U.S. military. I grew up mostly in Europe and Asia. Um, in the 1990s, I was in the international telecom industry, and then I uh, retired from the industry and relocated to Indonesia. Um, and in, living in Indonesia, I became close friends with a man named Abdurrahman Wahid. Uh, the title of this book, God Needs No Defense, is the title of a very famous article that President Wahid wrote in Indonesia, Tuhan Tak Perlu Dibela. But that book also became, that title became the title of an article in English that was published by Oxford University Press, Defending Religious Freedom from a Muslim Theological Perspective. Uh, the name of that book was Silenced. Uh, the co-authors were Nina Shea, and Paul Marshall, the Center for Religious Freedom at Hudson Institute. And President Wahid, I call him President Wahid, from 1984 to 1999, he was the chairman of Nadlatu Ulamas, the world's largest Muslim organization with approximately 90 million followers with about 21,000 religious boarding schools, uh, Islamic boarding schools. And in 1999, uh, when he was president of Indonesia, he played a key role in Indonesia's successful transition from a military dictatorship, authoritarian rule, to become what's arguably the most successful democracy in the Muslim world. And he was elected Indonesia's first democratically elected president uh, in 1999. And he and I became personal friends after the 9-11 attack, after the first Bali bombing attack, we decided to establish an organization called uh, Lib for All, as in Liberty for All Foundation, incorporated in North Carolina, but operational worldwide, in order to use the strategies that were employed by his ancestors hundreds of years ago to marginalize and discredit uh, Islamist extremism in Indonesia. 
And uh, that organization uh, was very successful in many ways. Um, and when President Waheed died in 2009, because he was such a, a major world historic figure, I had developed relationships during his lifetime with the top leadership of Nadatu Ulama and have continued to the present day to work with the top spiritual leaders of this organization, Nadatu Ulama. In 2017, we adopted the rubric, the, the idea of humanitarian Islam to promote the dominant understanding of practice of Islam from the perspective of Nandatu Ulama, which is Islam as Rahma, uh, Islam as universal love and compassion, as opposed to the kind of Islam you see on the ground with ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram. Now, how long have you two been working together on this working group? Well, we uh, first got into extensive contact a little over two years ago. Um, Perhaps you recall there was the <clears throat> bombing of some churches in Sri Lanka on Easter of 2019. And shortly after that, Holland, representing the leadership of the Nadatu Ulama, wrote to me and I'm sure other people as well, saying, uh, this is not what our type of Muslims do. This, this does not represent us. And he indicated they wanted a much higher level of interaction with Christians and seeing uh, I was, of my role in the World Evangelical Alliance, I was a good, good choice. And I immediately, after he wrote, uh, contacted the leadership of the WA, and they said, you know, immediately, this is important. Let some other things wait. Uh, spend your time and working on this. So I, since the spring of 2019, I started working on this, and that meant a lot of research initially. <clears throat> but then we... Holland and I started writing back and forth extensively. Uh, I think had some calls. And um, then later in 2019, we met in person. And uh, by the end, and toward the end of 2019, I guess it was probably November, we had a, a large meeting in Jakarta. Uh, and I think seven or eight people from the World Evangelical Alliance who went to their offices in Jakarta. They had a team there, uh, Holland and uh, Pak Yaya were leading that team. We spent a whole day mostly talking and decided we had to put together a joint working group to work on this further, that there was a lot to do. And so this book is the first major publication jointly. We've had some things we've written prior to this, but this book is the first major publication from our joint working group. And I'm leading the, the Christian side of the joint working group and Holland is leading the Muslim side of the uh, joint working group. Anything to add to that, Holland? Does that pretty much summarize? That's an accurate description of what happened. And we were just happy when uh, the WBA, they had their annual assembly or their general assembly in uh, Bogor, Indonesia, outside of Jakarta. And then we were very pleased when uh, Tom Johnson, when Thomas Schiermacher, at the time, I think he was the head of the Theological Commission and a, a Deputy General Secretary, Secretary, Deputy Secretary General. Last February, um, Thomas was appointed as Secretary General and CEO of the uh, World Evangelical Alliance. And so this was very good timing from as far as we were concerned. And uh, he, Thomas Schiermacher, uh, you know, has indicated that as he moved into the office of Secretary General of the WEA, he as a co-founder and, and, and uh, you know, and helping to establish the joint working group between humanitarian Islam and WEA, he's bringing this agenda right into the executive offices of WEA. And from our point of view, this is, this is a very welcome development because we feel that uh, the world is facing multiple crises, not just one, multiple crises. And it's very important that we find ways to work together uh, to address these crises. And we feel that the WEA and its leadership are very sincere and effective partners in this endeavor. Well, uh, this book, as you know, is a feshrift in honor of Schirmacher. For those who are watching and listening who aren't familiar with him, can you gentlemen uh, talk about uh, his background, his work, and, and why this book is intended to honor him. Well, maybe I should. I've 
I've worked with him closely for 18 years. We've known each other for more than 20 years. Uh, Thomas Schumacher is German, but uh, he's been international from his childhood. Uh, when he was a kid, his, his parents were involved in, widely involved in various evangelical mission activities. And as he tells it, one of the shaping events for him is his parents were in, in Scotland and he was along as a little boy. And somehow got, when their ferry was leaving, he got left behind as a little boy. And a very poor family in Scotland took him in, I'm sure they contacted the police, took care of him until his parents got all the way back to find him. He's had this kind of incredibly international life. Um, and uh, he's the only person I know with four earned doctorates, two American doctorates, two European doctorates. And again, that sort of indicates his background. Uh, one of, as a German, one of his doctorates is Dutch and one is German. Uh, and he's been known as the, um, one of the most prominent thinkers on religious freedom for a couple decades. Um, and um, he's an extensive writer. This isn't so well known in German because he writes mostly in German that not so many of your audience would read, but he's one of the most widely published writers on the topic of ethics in the German language. His, uh, his introduction to Christian ethics is about, uh, I think it's six volumes, it's about a foot thick, six volumes. That's his, one of his many books is a six volume study in ethics. Um, and, uh, that's, and so Schirmacher has been involved in the World Evangelical Alliance for a long time been part of his career trajectory while he was also a, a founder of a seminary, Martin Bootser Seminary, and the founder of a major humanitarian aid organization in Germany called Giving Hands or in German Gebende Hände. So it's been my privilege to work with him since, I think since 2003, I've worked with him in different capacities. Uh, but he's, he's German, so he's much more well known in Europe than in North America. Well, hopefully through conversations like this, uh, North Americans can become more familiar with him. Uh, Holland, what was it about his work that you, you gentlemen, I, I've worked together uh, as a co-editor before, and I know it's, it's navigating, uh, having conversations, coming to agreement about content. What was it about uh, Schermacher's uh, work and background and, and approach that led you as a co-editor want to in, include this, include his name as a fast on the cover of the book? Well, we feel that Thomas Schirmacher is a major figure, as uh, you know, I would echo everything Tom has said. Tom know, has known Thomas Schirmacher much longer than we have, but um, we noticed very early on that he was a decisive individual, <laughs> and he was an individual not afraid of taking responsibility, and he also struck us as an individual who acts on principle. <laughs> And um, now being a German, being an academic, uh, being a theologian, um, creating this book, which is a historic first, really. It's, people don't generally think of Muslims and evangelicals working very closely together, especially working closely together, acknowledging their theological differences and acknowledging certain ethnic commonalities, and then acknowledging problems that exist. You see, we basically operate, our joint working group operates based on the principles of honesty and transparency. And this comes from the top down, from the side of uh, the World Evangelical Alliance, from Thomas Schirmacher, from Tom Johnson, also comes from the top down on the side of Nadatu Ulama and the humanitarian Islam movement. And so when we were creating the first volume that we would produce together, we thought that it would be appropriate to bring forward some of the best thinking um, that's been produced in the 100-year history of Nadatu Ulama. Um, Nadatu Ulama was founded in 1926. It's almost 100 years old. Uh, your listeners and viewers may be interested to know that Nadatu Ulama NU was founded in direct response to the Wahhabi, that is the, the Saudi extremist conquest of Mecca and Medina in 1925. Uh, the religious leaders in Indonesia, Islamic leaders, realized the consequences of this. Uh, 
America was much later to realize the consequences, but the attack on the World Trade Center was one of the consequences of the Saudis conquering Mecca in 1925 and 26. Of the 19 hijackers, um, they were virtually all Wahhabis. They were all Muslim extremists. Uh, ISIS as an organization is a Wahhabi organization, ISIS, uh, Islamic State, uh, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, all of these movements that are terrorist movements within Islam, which are employing uh, what we call obsolete and problematic tenets Islamic orthodoxy within a context of a world which has changed, clearly. Um, they're all operating within a certain framework which Nadat Ulama was uh, created 100 years ago to create a barrier to prevent the entry of those ideas into what was then the Dutch East Indies. Uh, Nadat Ulama played a key role in Indonesia's establishment as a multi-religious and pluralistic nation state not as a Islamic state in 1945. Nadatu Ulama defeated uh, the Dutch when they tried to come back after World War II to rule Indonesia. Nadatu Ulama defeated an Islamic state guerrilla movement from 1949 to 1962, together with the Indonesian government that sought to turn Indonesia into an Islamic state. So Nadatu Ulama has a long history of opposing religious extremism within Islam itself. And so when we looked at publishing a work uh, together with a joint publication with the World Evangelical Alliance, where the thoughts of some of the top uh, figures within Nadatu Ulama over the past hundred years would be brought to bear alongside texts with figures from the World Evangelical Alliance, we thought what well, could be more appropriate than dedicating this volume to Thomas Schirmacher as a feshrift in honor of his vision for the future of cooperation between Muslims and Christians to hopefully bring about a world in the 21st century where there's freedom of conscience for all. Well, can you gentlemen uh, talk about uh, the structure and contents of the book? It's got an introduction and it's got three main sections with a number of contributors. Uh, what can uh, readers look forward to in this volume? Who would you like to take that, uh, Tom? Well, um you can look for and it I'll, I'll talk about what uh what i see that the great our muslim colleagues have contributed um you've got some of the <clears throat> seminal texts of the development of the nadlatu ulama and which now they you know present publicly as humanitarian islam but you've got some of their key texts there uh that go back all the way to the 1920s, but come up through the beginning of the 21st centuries, 21st century. And you also have uh, a summary statement of uh, the, one of their recent primary documents. So you've got in that one volume um, from the primary sources, the major ideas that constitute humanitarian Islam as opposed to Islamic extremism. Uh, and so you can read those sources and you get it you know, directly from them, what they, believe, what they have to say that is so different from ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram or any of the other extremist groups. And it's that which, which makes it possible for, for me as a Christian to say, okay, uh, these are people who can have a, a religious and ethical basis for being very good neighbors. And that's uh, extremely important in our time that we talk about, okay, are these people whom I can trust to be good neighbors based on what they are saying, what they are writing, their principles that they are following, can I trust them? So that's why I like these documents, the, the Muslim documents, because it explains their foundations for life. It doesn't tell me so much about how they pray or how they celebrate Ramadan. As a Christian, that doesn't worry me so much. I'm interested, of course, but I, it's, my interest is, do they have a foundation, a spiritual, ethical foundation for being good neighbors in society? And it's clearly yes. And there they have, there you have all their, well, not all, but many of the most important documents that articulate that. Holland, what would you add to that? What I would add is that, um, for example, uh, Part one of the volume consists of uh, four chapters, two pieces by 
Kiai Haji Abdurrahman Wahid, whom I mentioned earlier in this conversation, the former long-term chairman of Nadatu Ulama and first democratically elected president of Indonesia, one is titled God Needs No Defense. And as I said, it's a theological defense from a Muslim point of view of freedom of worship. This is world historic. Um, then that is paired side by side with an article by an essay by Tom Johnson, uh, The Ethical Case for Cooperation Between Protestants and Humanitarian Muslims. And so and that's, uh, Tom was alluding to that in his comments just now. The third article, uh, third essay in the part one is called Rahma, Universal Love and Compassion. It's by President Wahid. It's actually published for the first time in this volume. He wrote it before he died in 2009, but we've never published it before. We actually made the decision in this Feshrift in honor of Thomas Schirmacher to publish that essay for the first time. Um, it's, a, it's a very significant essay, and it explains what uh, the Nadatu Ulama regards as the primary message of Islam. Uh, People act based on their beliefs, their belief system. Uh, Al-Qaeda has a certain understanding of Islam uh, that leads to their behavior. Uh, uh, to Ulama believes that the primary message of Islam is universal love and compassion, which should not just be confined to one's fellow Muslims, but to all human beings, to all creatures, to all of creation. Because their concept of God is that God is by nature full infinite, infinite love and compassion. So if one is, in fact, a servant of God and devoted to God, then how could one do anything else than be a conduit for God's love and compassion to others? And so when we look at... Uh, the face. Uh, uh, some people have referred to Indonesian Islam or Nadatu Ulama as the smiling face of Islam, um, as opposed to we have a good friend who is Egyptian, a famous Quranic scholar from Egypt who used to talk about Indonesian Islam as the smiling face of Islam. And obviously, ISIS um, is a terrifying, <laughs> it's a terrifying face, but they, they both are different aspects of Islam. Just like I, I say in talking about the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, if you were Jewish, um, your concept of Christianity would not be based on theology. It would be based on the Catholics that you met. And if you met St. Francis, who came and hugged you and wanted to wash your feet, <laughs> this is a beautiful experience of Christianity. But if you met the Grand Inquisitor, this was a totally different experience. The same reality is true of Islam today. Depending on what Muslim you meet and where, under what circumstances, you might have a horrific experience or you might have a beautiful experience. So this first uh, section, part one of the book, lays out from Tom Johnson two essays. <laughs> And then they're paired with two essays by President Wahid. And I should mention that President Wahid, both of his grandparents um, were co-founders, his paternal and paternal grandparents were co-founders of Nadatul Ulama in 1926. And they were successfully um, the chairman of the Supreme Council of, of Nadatul Ulama from its founding in 1926 until, until the death of his maternal grandfather in about uh, 1977 or so. So this President Wahid is part of, you could say, a blue blood um, of Javanese nobility. Uh, uh, Brett Stevens, who was formerly a foreign columnist with the Wall Street Journal in a Wall Street Journal article, profile interview with President Wahid when he was still alive, titled that uh, weekend interview in the Wall Street Journal, The Last King of Java, because literally President Wahid's ancestors were the last Hindu Buddhist kings of Java. And then he's also descended from the first Muslim Sultan of Java. And these were different people, um, but it's a complex, you could just imagine in, in the complex interplay of history, how this could work itself out. But this is a world historical figure. Um, and the first part of the book allows readers to look and see the similarities between the views of uh, WEA theologians as expressed by Tom Johnson Reverend Johnson, and the Nadatu Ulama in humanitarian Islam. So I would just speak there and leave it there about part one of the book. If you want to discuss part two or part three, be happy to go there as well. Yeah, I, I would like to, I think uh, listeners would like to, and viewers to hear a little bit more about part one sounds amazing, and I'm sure part two and three as well. What could they expect in uh, the second and third parts of the volume? Do you have anything you want to say about this first, Tom? Well, um, <clears throat> I'd say is. I felt like it was quite an honor that two of my essays would be uh, in the same part of the book with Pres 
essays by President Wahid. So I, I felt quite honored by that. So uh, I, I should publicly say thank you for, to Holland and his team for including my essays at that point. You know, as we've worked on this, we've interacted extensively. You know, what do we include? This essay, that, this, that, this, that, back and forth. Sometimes saying yes to this, no to that, and over <laughs> quite a number of emails. But I felt really honored that two of my essays were included by the decision of Holland and his, his team. So uh, thank you to him for that. What I, what I would say in that regard is that the Humanitarian Islam World Evangelical Alliance Joint Working Group would not exist if it wasn't for Tom Johnson. Uh, Tom first, you know, as he mentioned, he responded to some communication, uh, communicated with me and really took the lead um, within the WEA, uh, studied our work very, very extensively and as you would rightly expect of a person who is an evangelical theologian, a, a minister, a professor, an intellectual, um, who is committed to um, his religious beliefs, uh, he carefully vetted who we were. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a good thing, right? This is a good thing. And uh, so we have the highest respect for Tom. Uh, in part two, um, part two consists of a series of essays. Uh, the first essay has never been published before in English also, even though it's almost 100 years old. And it's the heart, the core of an address delivered by Kiai Haji Hashim Ashari, President Wahid's gra paternal grandfather, at the inaugural meeting of Nadatu Ulama in 1926. And he lays out the foundational principles of Nadatu Ulama, and that document subsequently is it's known in Arabic as Kanun Asasi Kodima, Kanun Asasi Kodima. And it is, excuse me, I'm, I'm thinking too fast here, Mukodima Kanun Asasi, which is the foundational principles of Nadatu Ulama. And it is embedded within the Nadatu Ulama permanently as the foundational principles of the organization, so that today, just as much as in 1926, what's laid out in that document expresses the Nadatu Ulama view of reality and of uh, social and religious responsibility. And I think your readers would be particularly interested in this because what he speaks to in that article is what happens to a society when it lacks unity. Um, in 1926, in what's now Indonesia, what was then the Dutch East Indies, the Muslim community was faced with the spread of Wahhabism, with the spread of radical Islam. You can see in Yemen, the civil war in Yemen, how it's destroying Yemen. You can see how Syria was destroyed, how Iraq has been destroyed, how Libya has been destroyed, right? It's just an absolute disaster. Afghanistan destroyed, um, Pakistan destroyed by religious extremists, is Islamist extremism. The not founders of the Nadatu Ulama understood in 1926 how Islamist extremism would destroy a society. So in his foundational speech, he explained the consequences of lack of unity and lack of uh, humility, lack of a profound, profoundly humble and spiritual approach to religion and how when people are using, weaponizing religion for political purposes, it can tear a society into pieces. And then, um, as he put it, uh, any society which is turned against itself, as Lincoln said, um, can any house divided against itself cannot long stand. So if, you, if your uh, listeners to this uh, podcast think about what's happening in America today, the polarization, if they were to read this article, they would see... <laughs> Uh, the founder of the Nadatu Ulama in 1926, analyzing precisely what is happening in America today, was happening in much of Europe today, together with a prescription. But see, from our point of view, if we talk about a prescription, we don't, we're not saying that the prescription has to be Islam. Um, that's why we're so interested in working with the WEA. What's in, the prescription is fundamental moral values. The prescription is humility. The prescription is building society together and coming together, not allowing self-interest and ego to tear people apart or ideology to tear people apart, but rather a sense of humility and service um, to others and to God. And so I think your readers would be very interested in this text. And interestingly enough, 
in the hundred year history of Nanatu Ulama, as far as we can tell, it's never been translated into English nor published in English. It's being published and in English translation for the first time in this Feshrift in honor of uh, Thomas Schirmacher. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider becoming a part by sharing on social media, clicking like, and visiting our patrons page and website donation page. You can find the links on the program notes and YouTube comments. Thank you for your partnership. Now back to the program. What is, do you have something, Tom? Yeah, if I could add to that. Um, you know, as, you know, as a Christian, I'm, I'm very interested uh, in what's the role of Christianity in a society? And is Christianity primarily uh, a one combatant community in a society? Or is uh, Christianity the source of ideas and principles and people who, um, who stand for something more than being one fighting group within a society? Uh, we make universal claims within Christianity that humans are made in the image of God, that humans are fallible and sinful. We also make universal claims about right and wrong, that certain things are right and wrong regardless of who we are or what religion we belong to. And that's, so there's this universal component within Christianity that is not, does not turn Christianity into one warring party. And that's what I was looking for when I carefully investigated the documents of the humanitarian Islam movement. That's also how they perceive Islam. It's not the ideology of one warring party, the way ISIS has made it. They've, uh, they've taken, within Islam, they focused on the, the universal themes. Uh, now you see that in President Wahid, but you see that all the way back into their founding documents. You see that in their more recent documents of the last uh, five, six years. Uh, they produced a tremendous amount of literature in response to ISIS and Boko Haram. And uh, you see that same kind of theme, focusing on the universal values, values that promote civilizations flourishing rather than self-destructing. It's an emphasis on universal human dignity, not just the dignity of members of their own religion, but the dignity of all. And the fallibility of everyone, not just the fallibility of people of other religions, but their own. Uh, so they're going to be quite self-critical. Um, so those are some of the themes that are very important to me here. One of the things that struck me emotionally uh, when reading the introduction was the, the section where there's a description of, uh, of uh, humanitarian uh, Muslims who are watching videos, watching on television, acts of violence uh, and murder and terror by uh, ISIS. Uh, last night, I watched a documentary on uh, a, a leader in Syria who had formerly been with Al-Qaeda, and then he was seen as a competitor for finances and the rights to commit violence. And so he left Al-Qaeda, now he's got his own group, and he's still fighting in Syria uh, against Assad. And it, it seems like uh, it, it, all the players in that region are tapping into their vision of Islam. And they say they want to avoid becoming a dictator and a tyrant, but once they gain power, they end up using their religion as a tool for oppression. Uh, what was it, when, when you saw those kinds of things on television, uh, what is it that, that made you wanna tap into the, the, the roots and the heart of your faith, Holland, to, uh, to do the kinds of things you do in an expression of, of humanitarian Islam. And for those who are listening and viewing and maybe you didn't see my prior conversation uh, with Tom, tell us a little bit about humanitarian Islam as well. Okay. Um, I was with uh, the top leaders of Nadat Ulama when we were all watching these uh, videos. Um, we actually were watching them together with a colleague of ours who's not Muslim, but a professor at the University of Vienna in Austria with whom we had a joint uh, partnership, Vienna Observatory for Research in Extremism and Terrorism. And these ethnic German, non-Muslim, but fluent in Arabic, fluent in uh, Islamic studies, experts in Islamic studies. These are people who are experts in Al-Qaeda and ISIS execution videos, academic experts. Imagine that, right? Mm -hmm. I'm talking about every day, spending many hours a day studying 
the videos of the executions together with their theological justifications. So um, through our partnership, we came to study this as well. And I remember in the context of watching a two-hour um, series of horrors, each, these are live snuff films, um, people being executed, one after another after another, each with a theological justification explaining it, every single one. Um, two things, uh, several things stood out to us. Uh, one figure who was watching, very senior figure in Nadatulama, looked at me and said, Holland, you know, you and I, we're not going to be negatively influenced watching this. But a lot of Muslims could be. Because everything they're arguing is rooted within certain elements of Islamic orthodoxy. And another gentleman who was there um, that uh, Tom Johnson mentioned, who's uh, one of the co-founders of the Humanitarian Islam WA Joint Working Group, the General Secretary of the Nadat Ulama Supreme Council was with us watching. And he said three times in steadily louder voice, he said, every single thing that ISIS is doing here is actually consistent with elements of Islamic orthodoxy. He said, we've got a problem. He started off saying it just in a normal voice, and then about 10 minutes later, he said it in a louder voice. And then he said it a third time in a very loud voice. And he was exercising his religious authority to say to the other people in the room, we got a problem. We have to be honest about this problem. Because if for us, the primary message of Islam is rahmah, is universal love and compassion, that's not doing any good to the Yazidis or the Chaldean Catholics or um, Christians living in Syria and Iraq. It's not doing any good for people being attacked by Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab in Nigeria or in Kenya, right? Because Islam, just like I was mentioning earlier about Catholicism historically, um, it has different dimensions to it. It has one dimension, which is spiritual and loving. It has another dimension, um, which is rooted in the historic conflict between religions. And this gets back to the title of our book, that is, God Needs No Defense, Reimagining Muslim-Christian Relations in the 21st Century. One thing about evangelicals is they're generally not in denial about the historic conflict between Islam and Christianity. If you look at the West, um, there are certain people in the West who have forgotten this historic conflict. But this conflict lasted from the birth of Islam until uh, the 20th century, and it's still going on today. If you ask anybody from uh, Islamist extremist groups, they're still at war with the Crusaders <laughs> to this day. Um, this mm -hmm. is the framework in their mind. And as my father once said, um, uh, and as people know in, in, you know in the military context, you can't unilaterally declare a war over if your enemy's still fighting you. Um, there's no escape from this. We have, but the escape cannot be fighting 1.6 billion people in the world. This is our message to um, Americans and to people in Western Europe, but nor do you need to fight 1.6 billion people in the world, but it's absolutely essential to be honest about the problems. We feel it's essential for us to be honest about problems that exist within what we term obsolete and problematic tenets of Islamic orthodoxy. If we look at Catholic theology, what the Catholic Church did with Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council, with uh, Nostra Aetate and Dignitatis Humanae, they had, the Catholic Church dealt with issues related to state and religion with persecution of Jewish people. They went and revised their theology. I'm talking about Catholics, revised their theology in 1965 in order to address those elements of Catholic theology which could give rise to persecution of Jews, which could give rise to state-imposed religion. Now, one of the things we find attractive about WEA is that WEA established in 1846 emerged out of a movement within Western society, which was committed to religious freedom from the beginning. The way we see it, the WEA emerged out of circles that were profoundly committed to religious freedom and profoundly committed to the abolition of slavery. Both of these. <laughs> these are very interesting. This is a noble pedigree. I'm talking about WEA. And so when we saw what was happening with ISIS, our understanding, where I live, I live in a village with 250 people. I have never once, my wife is from here. My children are born here. I've been here married for 17 years. I've never once heard anyone here use the word infidel. In Arabic, the word infidel would be kafir. 
Um, your readers, may, your listeners may be interested to know that Nadat Ulama, in response to the horrors that we witnessed uh, perpetrated by ISIS, actually revised, recontextualized, reformed, issued new rulings in Islamic law abolishing the legal category of infidel, abolishing it, saying that the legal category of infidel is not relevant in a modern nation state. It can only lead to conflict and injustice. And this is a historic development that occurred in 2019 in response to um, what we encountered with ISIS and Al-Qaeda, but it also reflects the way Indonesian Islam, Nadatu Ulama, humanitarian Islam, because we use this term humanitarian Islam, but it really represents a, a strain within Islam that's very old. Um, just like um, St. Francis, I, I use this, this analogy, right? Or an aspect, you know, aspects of Islam, which of, of Christianity, which are full of agape, right? Um, you know, as I say, I'm from North Carolina and, you know, we have a saying, we see someone, well, that's a real Christian, right? He's a true Christian. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and your listeners know exactly what's meant when, when people say this, right? A true Christian, right? Not just wearing it on the skin or on the surface, but really in the heart and in the life. Um, and these people that I work with are people who, for them, Islam must be a manifestation of God's love and compassion. And if it's not, something is wrong. And so that's what motivated them. And that's what readers can track in this book. So if I just touch for a moment on part three, we have a very interesting article in part three. Part three starts with an article by Dr. Rudiger Lolker, who's from the University of Vienna, the co-founder of this uh, vortex, the Vienna Observatory, the expert on Al-Qaeda and ISIS execution videos. He wrote uh, a, an article which was published in Strategic Review called Theology Matters, the case of jihadi Islam. And he makes an absolutely irrefutable academic case that what ISIS is doing is consistent with Islamic teachings. <laughs> It's just that Islam is a big religion. It contains, it, it contains multitudes, to, to quote Walt Whitman, uh, just like Christianity is large, right? You had people, you had conquistadors coming to America with the cross committing genocide in the Americas too, as part of history. But we don't have to say this is Christianity, right? We don't have to say this is all of Islam. So we need to act. Um, this is our view. Uh, unfortunately, um, and let's put it this way, fortunately, unfortunately, we credit WEA, we credit the evangelical movements in the West for having addressed a number of these problems long ago, N namely the merging state and religion, imposing uh, religious belief on society and so forth, slavery and so forth. Um, the, the evangelicals were ahead of the curve in terms of the Catholic Church and the Christian world, and also ahead of the curve in terms of uh, the Middle East. But always here in the East Indies, in uh, what's now Indonesia, there's always been a spiritual understanding of Islam, which is predominated, because the indigenous people here, while they became Muslim, they refused to adopt the, as a dominant understanding and practice of Islam, a formal, uh, militant, aggressive understanding of Islam. They actually, from 500 years ago, felt that that was inimical to their civilization and their culture, and they defeated it militarily 500 years ago, here in, in where I live in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So they see all of this as coming back again and again and again. Uh, because it's rooted within classical Islamic law, because classical Islamic law reflects the circumstances of the Muslim world in the Middle East at the time of the Crusades, at the time of Byzantium, at the time of the siege of Vienna. That was just the reality of conflict. Um, but from our point of view, if that's where we want to go in a world full of nuclear weapons <laughs> and a globalized economy, uh, the first thing that's going to happen is, is, is the Muslim world wanting to challenge America, China, and Russia, which are nuclear armed? Uh, where is that going to lead the Muslim world? Secondly, where is that going to leave humanity? And third, where is the world going to be if you have an ongoing conflict between 1.6 billion Muslims and the rest of the world? Um, it's not going to be possible for us, all of us as human beings, to enjoy the benefits, the, the appropriate, what we would call the appropriate benefits of a globalized economy, which is, has brought greater wealth and, uh, and uh, material welfare to the world than any former system of economy prior to the 20th century. Right? There's obviously a changed world today. 
uh, and we don't see it being in the interests of Muslims uh, to be in conflict with the rest of the world. We think it's important that Islam and Muslim theologians and the, the Muslim population in general think, how can we recontextualize Islamic teachings so as to facilitate Muslims living and cooperating, coexisting with people of other faith? and respecting the equal rights and dignity of all human beings, whether they are Muslim or non-Muslim, whether they live in the Muslim majority world or they live elsewhere. And that's really what this book, you can, readers can trace uh, these thought processes um, over a prolonged period of time within the Nadatu Ulama and now in cooperation with the WEA. And because our, our partnership with the World Evangelical Alliance, the, um, the evangelical community is a powerful community. Right? It's a powerful community. Not a ulama is a powerful entity, but civilizations built on the division of labor and complementary skill sets. And the WEA and the evangelical community can go places and influence, exert influence where we cannot. Likewise, we can do the same. We can go places and exert influence where evangelical Christians cannot. Um, but if we have a common agenda and a common set of values, a common understanding of what type of structure is necessary for a harmonious coexistence in the 21st century, then we can support one another and strive together to achieve that objective. And that's, that, this book is an expression of that joint striving. Yeah, could I comment on that? Um, <clears throat> One of the things that struck me as soon as I start, started reading the documents by the humanitarian Islam movement was the awareness that theology matters uh, and that theology matters a lot. And it was now in their context, it's the Muslim world. You know, there are huge, diver there are huge differences in types of Muslim theology and those differences have massive effects on the way civilizations develop. Uh, in the Christian world, we could use a little more of that kind of theological self-consciousness that uh, within Christianity, theology matters too. It's not only in Islam that theology matters, but within Christianity, theology matters too. And there are dysfunctional types of Christian theology. There are much better types of Christian theology. And those differences have results in terms of the way entire societies function. Uh, now, I'll give a, an example that I used in my recent book on the humanitarian Islam movement, that um, a century or so ago in the United States, we had um, some rather extreme, during World War I specifically, when the United States government was trying to uh, develop support from the voters for American participation in the war effort uh, and especially the war bonds that were sold during World War I. There was a huge effort to develop widespread support for the war. And a lot of that was directly theological. So we had uh, Christian spokespeople in the United States uh, describing this as a holy war to Christians using crusader-type language in 1916, 1917, 1918, only 100 years ago. And among American evangelicals, those were our grandparents and great-grandparents who were using crusader-type language only a little bit more than 100 years ago. We still have some of that in our background among American Christians, this uh, crusader idea that uh, connecting, connecting church and state, faith and politics in a dysfunctional manner. That's why I say theology matters. Our theology of the state, our theology of public life, it has a huge impact. So that's one of the things I've appreciated about the humanitarian Islam movement, they're addressing that within the terms of Muslim theology. But, uh, some of that, we have some unfinished work there in terms of Christian theology, Protestant theology, in terms of what's the proper role of faith and society, church and state, uh, personal ethics, public ethics. Um, we've got some work to do there yet. So that's one of my reasons in writing about the humanitarian Islam movement is to try to prompt 
more of that kind of discussion among uh, Christians in our time. Uh, yeah, this podcast is going to be published uh, the week the book uh, is released. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that event? Uh, maybe some general information about uh, how it's going to be released and those kinds of things? You want to uh, go with that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the details of the launch of the book are still being sorted out right now. It's not happened yet. Um, but the, the most important thing in my assessment is that we should have there the, the official leader of the world's largest Protestant organization with the leader of the world's largest Muslim organization together for the launch of a book. Uh, and that's of tremendous symbolic importance that uh, the event itself embodies part of the message that such cooperation in, in public life is possible for Christians and Muslims. So that's the most important thing is that who is doing this? Uh, even while we are finalizing some details of exactly uh, how, time and place and so on. Holland, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, just that we think it's significant that the book will be launched in Washington, D.C., uh, in the capital of what remains the most powerful country in the world. And we hope that the book will, in addition to um, attracting the attention of evangelicals and Muslims, also attract a broader audience because uh, the, from our perspective, what's happening in America, it poses an existential threat to world civilization. Uh, since World War II, there's been a rules-based international order, which has to a large extent depended upon stability. It's produced stability, but it's also depended upon stability in America. And if we look at the current instability in America, the breakdown of civility, if we look at the extreme polarization, and if we look at what we refer to as identity politics, um, within an Islamic context, identity politics means Islamic supremacism. <laughs> it means supporting everybody else to Islam. That's what is identity politics is within an Islamic context. We have very close working relationships in uh, Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa. In Sub-Saharan Africa, identity politics means one tribe killing members of another tribe or enslaving them historically. Right? This is what identity politics means in most of the world. America has lived with the blessing of the US Constitution. America has lived with the blessing of uh, civil liberty and rule of law and mutual respect um, for such a prolonged period that I think unfortunately certain people don't realize it, the structures of government and self-government in America, while they, they are an anomaly in world history, and they, we historically, Americans have felt secure under this structure and secure to speak in their minds. But in reality, the structure of government and the system of government in America, in many ways, is like a wooden building, a wooden church, or a wooden cathedral. And from our perspective, people are lighting fires and they got open fires in the middle of a wooden structure. This is absolutely insane from our point of view. And so the optics that we're aiming for with the launch of this book are to all also point out what is at stake to show a model of how two identity groups, Muslim and Christian, can work together. Muslim and evangelical can work together for the well-being of humanity and then also bring forward into people's awareness that we need to return to certain core values, core values, because if a society loses its moral compass and instead degenerates into a conflict where religion simply becomes a tool for worldly acquisition of power or ideology is the same. It doesn't matter whether it's, a, it's religion or a secular ideology, people in the name of a secular ideology seeking political supremacy. This is a prescription for civilizational disaster. That was the message of Kai Hashimashari 100 years ago in the fifth chapter of our book. Um, as I said, the Mokodima Kadon Asasi, the foundational principles of Nala to Ulama. We hope that the, this book 
the launch with uh, Thomas Schirmacher and Yaya Khalil Stakov, the leaders of Nadatu Ulama and the World Evangelical Alliance, and then the optics of that launch will hopefully, hopefully help bring people to reflect um, because we all have an opportunity with our lives to make every day make decisions. And hopefully we will choose to make decisions that will help to build up society instead of tear it apart. And that's our hope for the launch of this book in Washington, D.C. with the WEA. Tom, anything to add to that? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I find it profoundly interesting that here we have the two most important two of the most important religious leaders in the world, evangelical and a Muslim, neither of whom are Americans, uh, coming together in Washington, D.C. to launch a book. Uh, that's because uh, what happens in, on the borderline between religion and politics in the United States affects the whole world. Uh, so Thomas Schumacher representing the World Evangelical Alliance and the probably well over 600 million evangelical Christians in the world, he knows that what happens in America affects those 600 million Christians around the world. Pak uh, Yaya Stokov from Indonesia knows, you know, representing not only the Indonesian Muslims, but having a responsibility for a lot more, a lot of, a lot of other Muslims globally, uh, probably many, many millions of other people who follow his leadership. Uh, he knows he's coming to Washington be, to, for this book because he knows that what happens in the relationship between religion and politics in America affects probably hundreds of millions of Muslims around the world. It's not just people in Indonesia, not just people in America. So that's why we have a, a I think you know, all of us in this conversation happen to be Americans. We have a tremendous responsibility for the relationship between religion and public life in America, because that shapes a whole lot of what goes on globally. Once uh, the book uh, is published, how can interested readers secure a copy? Uh, there'll be multiple ways. Uh, we, we are planning to make the book available as a uh, free PDF for download on some of our websites. Um, we've, in fact, as we've been editing the book, our technical people have been developing a print version, uh, a PDF download version, and a version for, uh, for Kindle and some more electronic book versions. So there are multiple texts. The content is the same. It's just technical details of the computer files. So it will be available in multiple ways but the easiest way for people to get a copy will be to download it from one of our websites. If you wish, we could send you a, one of those copies to put on your website as well. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I'd love to make it available. Holland, did you have anything to add to distribution uh, within your service? Yeah, we, we're, we will do the same. And then we will um, also, so we'll also make it available on our websites. And then it will be, there's a print version which will be available through Amazon if people want a physical copy. But as Tom said, uh, the WA is gonna be publicizing, making it available. Nadat um, Ulama and the Humanitarian Islam Movement will do the same. And then for example, when you put this uh, interview up online, you could post a, an image of the book and, um, and enable people to download it for free um, if they're interested in reading the book after they've watched this video. That'd be fantastic. I look forward to that. Gentlemen, as we bring this to a close, is there anything else you'd like uh, listeners and, and viewers to know about? Well, let me say that I think um, Muslim-Christian relations is one of the most uh, important theological issues of our time. And it's because uh, we're dealing with the issue, can we identify universal standards, universal values uh, by which uh, societies can live together in a constructive manner rather than in a destructive manner. So I think that Muslim-Christian relations are uh, one of the most important issues of our time for a particular set of reasons having to do with the foundations for life together in society. What I would simply say is that uh, we hope and pray that the evangelical community in America will be strong, 
that it will uphold moral values for the country and that it will contribute to the um, harmony within America and the preservation of America's role in the world as a force for good and a force for stability. We know that there's so many forces at work in, uh, in modern society, and we just want you, everyone to know that we evangelical Christians represent such a significant force in America, and the future of America and the future of the world also depends on the health of its religious communities, and we wish all of you all the best in preserving the strength and vitality of your faith. Well, gentlemen, it has uh, been a privilege to, to converse with both of you and listen to both of you. Tom, I want to thank you for introducing me to Holland and for suggesting this conversation as a means of promoting this book. And uh, we will uh, we'll work with you and include uh, a link for a free download for those who would like to secure a copy. And uh, you are both of you together or separately are always welcome to come to the podcast and uh, and discuss things and share what's on your heart and mind. Uh, I am in sync with uh, your, your efforts and hope that uh, our two great faiths can work together to work through our challenges, not only within our religious communities, but as our religious communities uh, try and uh, work through the challenges that we face as there are clashes in various civilizations. So I thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us here. It's been a real pleasure to be with both of you. And Tom, it's always an honor and a privilege to be with you. Well, thank you both of you too. Uh, it's, uh, this has been, uh, I think, very worthwhile because we have uh, serious questions to consider together. And both of you are, are serious discussion partners. Thank you. Okay, all the best. Y'all yep. take care. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm, uh, I'm the host for the uh, Multi-Faith Matters podcast. My guest has been Thomas K. Johnson and C. Holland Taylor. And uh, check the program notes and uh, be sure to pick up your copy of God Needs No Defense, Reimagining Muslim-Christian Relations in the 21st Century. Thank you for watching and listening until our next episode of the podcast. <laughs>